traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Bar-Rakib's memories of the palace coup were a montage of violence and flight. He'd only integrated the actual events much later. The death of his great-grandfather, Panamua I, the assassination of his grandfather, Barsur, and his urgent departure from the Somalian capital with his father, Panamua II. Since most of their immediate neighbors were enemies, the priority was finding a safe river crossing which likely meant Carchemish or Carshalmanazer. On reaching the far bank, Panamua may have reassured his son that their lives were no longer in danger, because they'd reached the lands of their benevolent protectors, the Neo-Assyrian Empire. As Bar-Rakib was still a young boy, the weeks during which they traveled east may have seemed like a sort of adventure. Until finally, at the end of their journey, they arrived at the city of Kalhu. And I'm going to be honest here and say that I cannot even conceive of a boy's first impressions when confronting the wonders of Kalhu. The gardens, the parks, the walls, the citadels. It must have seemed like something dreamed and shaped and set in place by the gods. The only thing possibly more impressive was his first encounter with Tiglath-Pileser, his family's terrible divine protector. I mean, how could he have seemed like other than a god himself? Barakib didn't learn until later that Tiglath-Pileser had only just become king after seizing his predecessor's throne. So, without knowing it, they'd fled the aftermath of one bloody coup to arrive in the aftermath of another. The important thing was their gracious reception as faithful Assyrian vassals, and Tiglath-Pileser's solemn pledge to restore their exiled line. And sure enough, when Bar-Rakib and Panamua retraced their steps to northern Syria, they were accompanied by the Assyrian king and an army of tens of thousands. At some point during the siege of Arpad, Tiglath-Pileser fulfilled his promise, installing Panamua II on the throne of Samal with Bar-Rakib as crown prince. The Assyrian king even took some lands from Gurgum in the north and Arpad in the south to expand Somalian holdings. 
At the end of the siege, with our pod provincialized and all the neighboring kingdoms subdued, Samal had never been quite so safe and secure. Their dynasty owed the Assyrians everything. It was a fact they'd never forget. In 738, only two years after the fall of Arpad, Barakib learned that the Assyrian king was returning across the Euphrates. In his annals, Tiglath-Pileser related the cause. Tutamu, king of the land of Patan, neglected the loyalty oath sworn by the great gods and thereby disregarded his life. If you recall from way, way back in the series, Patan had been founded by Palestinians, i.e. Mycenaean Greek remnants, in the wake of the Bronze Age collapse. The last time we really discussed the kingdom was a century earlier, in 831, when the Assyrian Turtanu Dian Assurd installed a new ruler called Sassi. And while he was long gone, Sassi apparently remained the name of their game. Except, oh yeah, all the rules had changed. With the conquest of Arpad, Patan now literally bordered on Assyria, not to mention on supremely loyal Samal. And again, let me point you to the helpful maps I posted. The only excuse for Tutamu's rebellion was that the Patanite king had made the horrible wager that Tiglath-Pileser couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time, or, more to the point, deal with rebellions at opposite ends of his empire. But he can, and he will, and he did, and oh, look, here he is right now to provincialize your kingdom. After defeating and deporting the last sassy king, Tiglath-Pileser annexed Patton, installing an Assyrian governor and military garrison. He also deported the population to replace with Assyrian settlers. Do we all get that this is what's happening now, or do we need a few more examples? Yes, Hamath, I see your hand raised. Go ahead. Hamath had begun the Iron Age as a powerful Neo-Hittite kingdom one that frequently teamed up with Aram Damascus to fight Shalmaneser III. Slightly before that, Hamath had taken advantage of Ashur-Nasirpal's devastation of neighboring Luash to annex that kingdom as its own. Around 790 BC, Hamath's ruling dynasty had switched from Neo-Hittite to Aramean and from anti-Assyrian to pro-Assyrian with the elevation of the Hamathite king Zakur. We have little information on Hamath or Luash down through the next few decades, except that Arpad's role as all of Aram implied domination of both southern kingdoms, until Arpad was defeated and annexed by Tiglath-Pileser III. From what we can tell, Assyrian provincialization was only applied to Arpad proper which meant that Hamath and Luash were suddenly cut loose and left to their own devices. Well, I mean, within reason. We know from his tribute to Tiglath-Pileser that the new king Eni-Elu of Hamath was a loyal Assyrian vassal. He also expected to retain control over Luash, which is the rub, because Luash wanted to roll the clock back to their days as an independent kingdom. 
Their preferences became abundantly clear when a figure named Osriau announced a rebellion against Homothite domination from the ancient Luash capital of Hatarika, which had two major problems. The first was that Hamath was an Assyrian vassal in good standing, which meant that a rebellion against Hamath was a rebellion against Assyria. The second was that Tiglath-Pileser was still in the neighborhood and tended to frown on rebellions. In his annals, the king recorded his take, that the provinces of Luash had been criminally and sinfully seized by Osriel, and we're all becoming familiar with what comes next. According to historian Trevor Bryce, Tiglath-Pileser made short work of the rebels, with or without any Elu support, and annexed the conquered territories to Assyria, installing eunuch governors over them. Two Assyrian provinces were thus created from the former territories of Luash, Samira, a district and city located on the Levantine coast, and Hatarika, named for the former Luash capital. Also, yes, Tiglath-Pileser deported much of the population to replace with settlers from other parts of the empire. With Arpad, Patan, and Luwash provincialized, Assyria exercised direct control over the heart of northern Syria, along with a stretch of the northern Levantine coast. In nearby Samal, Panamua II and Bar-Rakib were likely all smiles and high-fives. As far as they were concerned, their royal patron Tiglath-Pileser was managing the empire well. His long stay outside the walls of Arpad showed that he'd assigned loyal and capable men to positions of authority back home. And now he'd established a Syrian foothold encircled by loyal vassal kingdoms, where his presence would only be needed as a matter of exception. Without necessarily being privy to the details, the Somalian royals were likely aware that Tiglath-Pileser's attention was demanded on several fronts. His first decade in power had seen victorious campaigns into Babylonia, Arabia, and the Zagros Mountains. But his greatest focus was on the only real enemy, Sarduri II of Urartu. Okay, so what the heck happened to Urartu? In the run-up to 750 BC, Sarduri II was unstoppable, gobbling up Assyrian territories, going toe-to-toe with Shamshi-Ilu, and vigorously expanding Urartu's frontiers in pretty much all directions. Then, after his defeat at Kuma in 743, we get virtual radio silence. Now, part of the reason is, unlike Tiglath-Pileser, Sarduri didn't leave behind detailed annals. But still, it's a pretty ginormous hole, and all we have to fill it with is a pile of speculation. Had the defeat at Kuma and the earlier defeat at Namri and the Zagros destroyed Sarduri's confidence in challenging Assyria? Or was his attention diverted by major crises in the other parts of his empire? According to historian Christoph Hipp, Sarduri recorded Transcaucasian campaigns against the lands of the Etiuni and the Ariahu tribe, and at least one additional campaign to the kingdom of Manea. 
but that still leaves a lot of missing time. Whatever his reasons, the upshot is the same. Sarduri II failed to capitalize on Tiglath-Pileser's regional distractions and extended absences for a period of eight long years. And the next time they met, in 735, Assyria had the advantage. As Hip reports, after confirming that an Urartian campaign was favored by the gods, Tiglath-Pileser assembled his army and marched on the capital of Tushpa. In response, Sarduri assembled the Urartian army just outside the city gates. The details of the ensuing battle are lost, but in its aftermath, Tiglath-Pileser recorded three main accomplishments. Inflicting a great defeat on Sarduri, devastating the countryside, and erecting a royal stele in front of the capital. Which, reading between the lines, means that he was unable to actually take the capital or capture or kill Sarduri. If you're wondering why he didn't pull an Arpad and besiege the city for the next few years, historians Hip and Danismas have one suggestion. The harsh conditions of Armenian winters may have posed a significant challenge for an army used to campaigning in warmer climes. But again, that's mainly speculation. We only know that in the wake of his victory, Tiglath-Pileser returned to Assyria and never bothered to return. Back in Syria around the same time, the Somalian royals may have learned of some troublesome rumblings down south. Because after freeing his kingdom from Israelite hegemony, the latest Damascene ruler, Razian, was trying to assemble a coalition to confront Assyrian dominance. Unlike previous Damascene kings, his pool of candidates was vanishingly small. All the northern kingdoms, right down through Hamath, were now in Assyria's camp, which mainly left his neighbors, Phoenicia and Israel. I've touched on Phoenicia a few times in Patreon mini-episodes. Long story short, we're deep in the era of Phoenician colonization of the Mediterranean, chiefly led by Tyre, which means that for much of the past half-century, the mercantile cities of the Phoenician coast had done little but get themselves rich. And I know this may shock you, but they hadn't missed Assyria one bit. Their two leading kings, Hiram II of Tyre and Sibit Bayil of Byblos, had both given tribute to Tiglath-Pileser. But it's not like they had any interest in making it a habit. And with their major allies and trading partners, Damascus and Israel, committed to rebellion and mutual defense, the Phoenicians were likely compelled to back their play. Speaking of Israel, the last time we really touched on the kingdom was back in 796, when the Assyrian governor Nergal Erish had freed them from Hazael's control. The king in power then, Jehoash, the grandson of Jehu, had then invaded Judah, plundered Jerusalem, and imprisoned the Judahite king Amaziah. But it was Jehoash's son, Jeroboam II, who'd made the more lasting impression. 
His lengthy rule of 41 years was one of Israel's most stable and prosperous, largely fueled by trade with Assyria and Egypt. The kingdom's power was such that, for one brief period, it even dominated Damascus. Jeroboam's death in 746 saw the ascension of his son, Zechariah, who ruled for six months before a rebellious general named Shalom killed him and took power, putting an end to the line of Jehu and the last branch Omri dynasty. Shalom in turn was besieged and killed by a loyalist general named Menachem, who then proceeded to take the throne just in time to render tribute to Tiglath-Pileser III. When Menachem died in 736, he was succeeded by his son Pekahiah, who was killed in Samaria in 734 by an Israelite general named Pekah. For the most part, Israel had had a consistent line and consistent policy from 796 right down through 734 mainly peace, trade, and nominal loyalty to Assyria. But Pekah, for whatever reason, swept in with a very new broom. And when Razian of Damascus came looking for an ally, King Pekah was happy to sign up. More than that, he hoped to recruit Israel's longtime frenemy to the south, the kingdom of Judah. As I just mentioned, Jehoash of Israel had imprisoned Judah's king Amaziah back in 783. Amaziah was succeeded by his son Uzziah, who'd gone on to rule Judah for 41 years, mostly in parallel with the reign of Jeroboam II. When he passed away in 742, Uzziah was succeeded by a son named Jotham. Then, in 735, by a son of Jotham named Ahaz. And it was the 20-year-old Ahaz who, right off the bat, was given the choice of joining his neighbors in open rebellion or keeping his loyalty to Assyria. Whatever his reasons, King Ahaz remained loyal and shot off a letter to Tiglath-Pileser. The opening move in the ensuing drama is interesting because once Ahaz of Judah spurned his advances, Pekah of Israel chose to engage one of Judah's and Israel's most legendary foes, the Philistines. In the century since the destruction of Gath, the Philistines had kept on plugging along at some fraction of their former prosperity. Their largest remaining city, Gaza, was ruled by a king named Hanunu. And while he likely had trade links with Egypt, Phoenicia, and even Arabia, it was a poor substitute for, you know, control over regional copper production. So Hanunu may have been tempted to march into Judah with visions of fat piles of plunder. Pekka likely used the same lure with his neighbor, Matinti of Ashkelon. To couple with the western threat of the Philistines, Pekka also enlisted the Edomites, under their king Kosmelek, to march on Judah from the south. It was, all in all, a reasonably comprehensive encirclement. And while Ahaz likely implored Yahweh for deliverance from his many, many, many enemies, 
his prayers were actually answered by Neo-Assyria. The eponym chronicle for 734 contains the entry to Philistia, which tells us two things. First, that Tiglath-Pileser got Ahaz's letter and was apparently willing to help. And second, that the greatest threat as perceived that year was the one from the Philistine coast. We have no idea what route the king used to cross the Euphrates and make his way south, because it's a long, long journey from Kalhu to Gaza. But make it he did, and once he'd arrived, the Philistines and Edomites were done. Tiglath-Pileser records conquering Gaza and Ashkelon, while Kosmelech of Edom was made an Assyrian vassal. It's an interesting moment to take a pause, because it's the first time in history that Assyria's holdings pushed right to the borders of Egypt, an Egypt currently under control of the pharaoh Pa or Pianchi of the Kushite 25th dynasty, which I'll probably cover in another Patreon mini-episode. If Tiglath-Pileser was a pure adventurer, he likely would have been tempted by the prospect of Egypt's relative weakness and legendary wealth. In fact, there was even a reasonable justification. He wrote in his annals that King Hanunu of the city of Gaza fled before my weapons and escaped to Egypt. So he could have marched south in hot pursuit. But Tiglath-Pileser was far too methodical a ruler to just go off half-cocked. Instead, he likely camped his army in Judah, no doubt supplied by Jerusalem's treasury, and prepared to execute the rest of his southern campaign. Since the days of Shalmaneser III, the greatest impediment to Assyrian dominance of southern Syria and Canaan had always been Aram Damascus. Razian standing up to Tiglath-Pileser was completely in line with the city's long history as tip of the Aramean spear. Hadad Azer had been killed in battle, but Damascus itself had held firm. Bar-Hadad II had been extorted for tribute, but the city itself had held firm. Before, and for a longer period than, Arpad, Damascus had been the preeminent Aramean kingdom, often simply called Aram. It was the last great symbol of Aramean power, which is why it had to be destroyed. In 733 BC, Tiglath-Pileser took the field against King Razian of Damascus. Assyrian forces were augmented by the armies of their local vassals. And, you know, Damascus was supposed to have allies, too. While Tyre and Byblos probably sent troops, there was one fairly notable absence, the Israelite army of King Pekah. Reasoning the cause was likely doomed, Pekah hoped that his ultimate abstention might somehow be taken for loyalty. Yep, nice try, Pekka. We'll get back to you in a bit. When the battle was joined, Tiglath-Pileser records that I broke their weapons and dispersed their battle array. In order to save his life, Razian fled alone and entered the gate of his city like a mongoose. 
and you've really got to appreciate the mongoose visual. On the other hand, the strategy kind of worked, and Tiglath-Pileser and the Assyrian army were forced to conduct a siege. While waiting patiently for the city to fall, Tiglath-Pileser did his best to keep himself entertained. This included impaling Razian's foremost men alive while making the people of his land watch, destroying the surrounding orchards and gardens, and, just for fun, capturing Razian's birthplace of Bit-Hadara and deporting the population. After 45 days, Tiglath-Pileser broke the siege and returned to Assyria. But it was only a temporary respite. When he returned to Damascus the following year, no army emerged to confront him. Razian instead continued to rely on the legendary Damascene walls, which, in fairness, had always been enough. But again, the game had changed. We don't know the details of the city's fall, but the end result was the same. For the first time in history, a conquering army marched through the gates of Damascus. Razian was captured, brought before Tiglath-Pileser, and executed. His kingdom was split into four new provinces, Damascus, Mansuwate, Subite, and Karnaim each with an Assyrian governor and military garrison. And much of the population was deported and replaced with Assyrian settlers. At the end of the process, Aram Damascus, Aramean Damascus, was simply no longer a thing. Just down the road in Samaria, the Israelite king Pekka was starting to think he just might be in the clear until a sword popped out and severed his head, or cut his throat, or opened his bowels, or maybe just stabbed him in the heart. The sword was held by a figure named Hoshea, who assumed the kingship of Israel. The Bible leaves out the motivation, but Assyria's got that covered. As Bryce relates, there is no doubt that the usurpation and assassination of Pekka were carried out with the support of Tiglath-Pileser. He claims as much in his own inscriptions, where he refers to the installation of Hoshea on the Israelite throne. Tiglath-Pileser informed the new king that, while he'd be allowed to rule from Samaria, the Assyrians were annexing the rest of his kingdom to create the new provinces of Megiddo and Gilead. The final act took place in Phoenicia, where the rebellious King Hiram II of Tyre was killed and his throne usurped by a figure named Matan II. Historians Keiko and Shigeo Yamada proposed that the heavy tribute paid by Matan noted in Tiglath-Pileser's inscriptions, should be regarded as being paid in order to gain Assyrian support for his new regime just after his usurpation. So, at the end of three years of vigorous campaigning, Tiglath-Pileser pretty much swept the board. Damascus and most of Israel had been provincialized, and vassal kingdoms confirmed or established in southern Israel, Judah, Phoenicia, Philistia, and Edom. 
We also know from additional sources that Salmanu of Moab and Sanipu of Ammon were also forced into vassalage. If you look at my maps, that's pretty much all of the south, to pair with his previous conquest of most of the north. I'll end with a bit of a local epilogue. The Assyrian triumph entailed some sacrifices, and one of the few of which we're aware is the death of the king of Samal. Bryce notes that Panamua II had taken part in several Assyrian campaigns, most notably in the conquest of Arpad that had seen him restored to his throne. But Bryce also relates that the king was killed sometime during the conflict with Damascus, after which Tiglath-Pileser installed his son, Bar-Rakib, on the throne. A contemporary stele marks the event. I am Bar-Rakib, the son of Panamua, king of Samal, servant of Tiglath-Pileser, the lord of the four quarters of the earth. Because of the righteousness of my father and my own righteousness, I was seated by my lord Tiglath-Pileser upon the throne of my father. The house of my father has profited more than anybody else, and I have been running at the wheel of my lord, the king of Assyria, in the midst of mighty kings, possessors of silver and possessors of gold." It was under Bar-Rakib that the kingdom of Samal reached brand new heights of prosperity. Historians Virginia Herman and David Schloen highlight numerous contemporary construction projects in the Somalian capital of Zinsirli. They also highlight that while new royal buildings hewed to the Bit-Halani style, they were arranged in a double courtyard configuration that mimicked Assyrian palaces. The urban plan of Zinsirli was modified to group elites near the royal palace. The authors suggest a conscious attempt to both bind elites to the political center as well as keep them under surveillance to prevent any further rebellions. On that happy note, we'll take our leave of a western region in the throes of the Pax Assyrica, or at least of its early formative stages. We still have plenty of local kings left, though most have been thoroughly humbled. Next time, we'll shift our attention to the Anatolian kingdoms of Tabal and Phrygia, which means, yay, you'll be getting a brand new map. Then we'll pop back down to deal with Israel before we stress test this reforged Assyrian empire with the coming of Sargon II. World Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, along with My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, The Explorers Podcast, and other great shows.